Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let us pray. The candle of hope uh, represents God's people's hope, the light shining in the darkness, the darkness that Isaiah and other prophets were predicting the coming of Jesus. Today we still have that hope, an eternal hope. John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Let us pray for our church. We give you thanks for the leadership that we have here. We pray for our pastors, deacons, and elders that you would uh, guide them and uh, as they guide us through the, the daily struggles that we may face. Lord, we pray for our children, our youth, uh, the leaders that are teaching our youth. We pray for uh, the young families that uh, are raising our the future generation. We just pray that each one would uh, spend time in prayer and uh, encouraging their children through the scriptures. Lord, we pray for our families here, the young families, uh, that you would be with each one. We pray for our marriages. We pray for the senior saints. Many are struggling through uh, health issues, and we just ask that you be with them and uh, never take their eyes off of you, knowing that you are the great healer and you are the one that we lean on. Uh, we thank you for this uh, time of Christmas as we celebrate the Christmas season. Um, we just uh, thank you that we can enjoy the lights and the gift giving and things that we have here and uh, that uh, we uh, pray uh, through Colossians 3.1. If you, have, if you have been receded or raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. And we do, Lord, give you the praise and glory and thank you for loving us and for uh, sharing this. And we pray uh, as uh, we go to this Christmas season, that when people come that don't normally come to church, that they will hear the gospel and change many lives. We just ask you to be with each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. And uh, I'd like to just go ahead and dismiss the kids to their time of worship upstairs. That is uh, preschool through fifth grade. You guys can go ahead and go upstairs. Thank you, AJ. This is my assistant, AJ. He carries heavy things for me, so I don't have to. Well done. It's reasonably straight. I'm actually going to adjust it just a little bit, just because I can. Um, thank you again for joining us. Um, I'll draw your attention to 
a couple things that um, you were given on your way in, and if, if you weren't, there's some available on the back table here. Uh, one is this Advent devotional. As we enter into the Christmas season, uh, we had Joe and Patty up here lighting the first candle of Advent for us and really bringing in this season of waiting and expectancy as we celebrate uh, not just one day of the year, but through this season, we put a particular emphasis on the coming of the Messiah in the Incarnation. Uh, this is a two-week devotional for the first two weeks of Advent. You'll receive another one in a couple of weeks. I just encourage you to read these. They're fairly light reading, and they focus on certain scriptures and aspects of the Christmas story. Um, so there's a week in here that just reflects on the various titles of Jesus the Messiah given in the passage that was just read from Isaiah 9. And then there's a week that focuses on some of the major fulfilled prophecies from the birth and life of Christ um, in there. And like I said, in a couple weeks we'll have a part two available for you. If you look at this half-sheet bulletin, you're going to see that Christmas season means lots of extra stuff going on. And first I'll tell you about one thing that's not on this list, and that is that this Saturday uh, our youth will be going to serve uh, with Operation Christmas Child in packing boxes, and it will be, I think it's Atlanta that they're going to to go serve at the Operation Christmas Child Center. And so we have some youth that are signed up to do that, so parents, if you don't know about this, now would be a great time to talk to AJ, get your youth signed up. But we have some extra spots available, so we want to make it available to others from the church. We have a limited number of spots, but if you are interested and you're not a youth, you can still go. Just talk to AJ and um, see what spots are available to that because we'd love to have a great team uh, serve together. Again, the emphasis is kind of building a team from youth, but we got enough spots reserved to where we can add some other people to that as well. Um, and then there's the various Christmas stuff coming up. The youth have a Christmas party. The kids have a Christmas event. Um, we have a Christmas caroling event where we're inviting families to come here, and we'll go out and we'll, we'll do some caroling to spread the good news. Um, part of the point of caroling is it's, it's this old traditional thing that we do, right? But it's a really meaningful thing because it can be a great encouragement um, to those that are at home and can't go out as much, especially in the cold weather, and we can come and bring some joy of the gospel to them. And it's also an outreach to preach the gospel in song form. Um, and so all of that stuff is in there. One thing that you need to know, because it's a question for, for some people, we will be meeting Sunday morning, December 25th. Um, that is Christmas morning. We will have a service. It will be a little bit shorter. We're going to delay the start. We're going to start at 11 o'clock Sunday, Sunday morning, the 25th, Christmas Day. We'll have our normal Christmas Eve service the night before, and then we'll come back here on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock for a little bit of a shorter than normal service. But we want to go ahead and make you aware of that so you can plan for that. This year, of course, um, Christmas is on a Sunday. New Year's is also on a Sunday. New Year's Day. We'll meet um, normally that day as well. Um, one more thing I want to make you aware of as, uh, before we open up the word together. Um, at the Thanksgiving dinner last week, I mentioned that we have a prayer box 
that um, we brought it into the gym for the Thanksgiving dinner. It's in the back of the room today on that back information table. And there are prayer request cards in, right by that box. And you can fill that out on a Sunday morning or you can always email Ramona with prayer requests to be shared publicly. This is another way of distributing prayer requests. The prayer requests in that box go to the ladies' prayer team. We're a special group of women in our church who are intercessors, who meet together to pray. And sometimes they pray separately and they distribute requests among themselves. And they also meet together um, somewhat regularly to pray as well. That team is led by Jeannie Hody. And there's a great group of women that love to serve our church through the ministry of intercession. And so if at any point you want to um, share a prayer request and have some extra prayer support in an issue, a challenge you're facing in your life, uh, please uh, do so through uh, filling out one of those cards in that box. Okay, I'm going to invite you now to turn to 1 Timothy 3. Next week, we're going to take a break from 1 Timothy as we go full-on Christmas and Advent. And uh, for the month of December, we're going to be opening up some key passages from the book of Isaiah together to focus on the Advent season and how this immense book in the Old Testament presents the Messiah to us. And so we'll be doing some highlights from the book of Isaiah for the Advent season. This week we finish this section on leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, this is a towel. This is a towel that I was given upon graduation. The diploma was more valuable to me at the time. But I was also given a towel. And this towel is given to every graduate from my seminary that graduates with a Master of Divinity, which is sort of a standard pastoral degree. And when you, when you receive your diploma, you also receive a towel for a very specific reason. Now, pastors can use towels for various reasons. Once, not that long ago, but perhaps you remember, I was standing over here, and uh, we had an overfull baptismal pool, and we had a mess of water all the way, all over this stage here. So towels are useful, but that's not why I have this towel. There's plenty of messes that happen in a church. Um, people get worked up about coffee stains on new carpet. Please don't do that, but that's not why I have the towel either. This towel is given as a reminder and you're told, you're, hold on to this tie. There's a reason for this. Do you know what it is already? It's to remind us of who Jesus is and to remind us of the pattern of leadership that Jesus set forth for his followers. John 13 will tell you about the towel. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you. So you remember this story, right? The setting is the Last Supper, the upper room. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows it. His followers don't. They gather together to celebrate the Passover Supper. And as they enter in to celebrate the Passover Supper, it's Jesus that takes the towel in his hand. None of the disciples that are there gathered with him to eat this meal with him take the towel. But Jesus, who is leading the supper, he's the rabbi, the teacher of this supper, he takes the towel and he washes their feet, every single one of them. It, this was a menial task for them, but it was a necessary task because their feet were dirty 
And as they were entering in to an inside room to enjoy a worshipful night of remembering God's provision over the nation Israel in the Passover, they needed to have their feet cleaned. And Jesus was the one who took up the towel. But verse 12 and following don't give you the story of the towel. They give you the reason for the towel. Because he looked at him after he had taken up the towel, after he had washed every one of their feet, and he said, do you know why I did this? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than a master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That's the reason for the towel. Jesus asked his leaders to follow him in serving others. Jesus didn't take low-level followers of him. He didn't take the rookies that had just been following him for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. He took his leaders those that had followed him the longest, those that would be the key leaders of the church in the generation following Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and eventual ascension. When Jesus was gone, these guys were the leaders. And these guys were the ones that needed the master class in Jesus' leadership. And the master class was the towel. That if you are going to lead, you have to serve. At another point in Jesus' ministry, he emphasizes the same point. James and John come to him to ask, uh, Rabbi, teacher, can one of us sit on your left hand in your kingdom and one of us sit on your right hand? These two faithful followers of Jesus said, let us be your number one and two guys in your eternal kingdom. And he said, actually, if you want to be great, James and John, you need to learn how to serve. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The pattern of leadership that Jesus defines for us as his followers is servant leadership. Leaders serve. Now, for the last month in November, we focused on leadership within the church, specifically from 1 Timothy 3, and we brought in a little bit of Titus 1 along the way. The last few, last couple sermons have focused on this specific group of leaders known as pastors, elders, or overseers. All of those words are used to describe the same group in the New Testament. And those are the spiritual authority teachers of the church. This week, we go back to 1 Timothy 3 to see a secondary group of leaders that the Bible defines for us. And they're called servants. We know them as deacons. Deacons, a made-up English word. I guess all words are made up at some point, right? But deacons is a made-up word that's a translation of the Greek word diakonos. The word diakonos really translates to servant. So a deacon is a servant, but a deacon is also a leader. So let's look at who deacons are from 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, 
sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here, here's this secondary group of deacons in 1 Timothy 3. Um, you know that we, as a church, we have pastors, elders, and deacons. The deacons serve more behind the scenes in this church. You don't see them as, up front as much, but deacons are a significant part of the ministry of this church and are a significant part of the ministry of the New Testament church. But let me remind you, as we embrace this teaching on New Testament leadership, we're looking for a couple of different things in each one of these sermons. Number one, we want to learn from Scripture itself what makes a leader. We want to learn what makes a leader so we know how to identify leaders. We know how to challenge existing leaders to hold to a high standard. We know how to develop future leaders and identify those that show potential for future leadership. But also, every single one of us has something to learn from the way the Bible defines leaders because we've all been given a task in the mission that God has sent us on. We've all been given a role within the body of Christ. And, and what the scriptures give us is the number one qualification for any leader in the church is character and maturity. We saw it with pastors and elders. We'll see it with deacons here today. Character and maturity are what qualifies and disqualifies leaders the most. And so each one of us Every single person in this room, every single person that's ever followed Christ needs a clear picture of what maturity looks like for a Christ follower, right? If you are going to follow something, if you are going to say, my life is committed to Christ, not just that I believe in him, but I want to follow him and I want to grow as a follower of Christ, you need to know what growth looks like. You need to know what maturity looks like. You need a pattern and a paradigm. And these leadership passages of 1 Timothy 3 give us not just the picture of leadership, but a pattern for maturity in which every single follower of Christ of all times can pursue that pattern to learn what it means to follow Jesus in a more mature way. So as we jump in here, we're going to look at the traits of the servant leader. The traits of the deacon, who we'll just mostly refer to today as a servant, because great leaders first serve. We'll see today that a servant models godly character, that a servant understands the gospel and basic doctrine, a servant is tested and approved, and a servant manages a household well. Finally, we'll ask a hard question. What is this passage telling us about women who serve within the church. Number one from verse eight, a servant models godly character. It says deacons must be, and then he mentions four things, actually one stated positively and three things stated negatively as kind of disqualifications. Deacons must be dignified, number one. This was the same qualification that was given to elders, overseers um, earlier in this passage. Dignified, is, a, is an important qualification that simply means somebody who is worthy of honor, respect, and esteem. The deacon is to live worthy of the respect and esteem of others. 
Uh, just as the elder list started with above reproach, and everything in the elder list that followed basically brought greater definition to what, meant, what it meant by above reproach. So the deacon list starts with dignified. Deacons must be worthy of the respect of others, both in the church and outside of the church. Not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. The word, mean, the word is actually dia logos. Dia means two. Logos means words. It, it double-speak, double double-tongued. What it's saying there, this is describing a person who says one thing to one person and another thing to another person. That's damaging for relationships. It's certainly damaging in the church, but it's damaging in any relationship. I know because I did that this week. Because, so here's what happens. And occasionally this happens. Um, I was talking to a guy before church who said, hey, my wife and I were talking. We had a question we wanted to, to send to you. I said, send it. I, I, love, I love questions. Send me your questions. Here's a question that was sent to me, I think it was Wednesday. Husband and wife were having a disagreement. So who do you reach out to for a solution to your disagreement? You text the pastor um, Thanksgiving week. Now, this was a very important, very important discussion for them. The question was, is it the sandwich properly referred to as a sloppy joe or a manwich? This was an easy question for me. I hope it's an easy question for you. It was a very surprising question to receive, but whatever, leaders serve, right? So I serve by answering the question that it's a sloppy joe and manwich is a brand that makes sloppy joe mix. So a sandwich is called a sloppy joe. But then I ask, what? why are you asking me this question? And I'm, te I'm texting with the husband at this point, right? Husband says, okay, my wife is convinced that it should be properly referred to as a manwich. And she's arguing me with me right now. You've concerned sloppy joe. Would you text her and tell her it's called a sloppy joe? I said, I'm happy to help. You want the pastor to weigh in and solve this problem? That's great. So what do I text the wife? Manwich. It's manwich, 100%. Because my loyalty to the truth was put on sacrifice for a moment just to be loyal to, craze, to cause further problems for this husband who was trying to, what I realized is he was trying to use the pastor against his wife in that moment. And then I was like, no, 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 I think I'm just going to take the wife's side no matter what she says. Um, that would be a proper definition of being double-tongued. Because I knew what the answer was. I told the husband what the answer was, and I said something totally different to his wife just to stir up some drama in the home. You don't want leaders that do that unless it's a joke. It's a joke, everybody. We're laughing. We're okay, okay. You want your leaders to be trustworthy. But you don't want pastors or elders or deacons, those that serve behind the scenes of the church, to come along one member and say one thing and then come to another member and say something totally different. That destroys relationships, it destroys trust in people, and it destroys trust in Christ's church. It's a great way to harm somebody's trust in Jesus because Jesus' people are not trustworthy to say the same thing to different people, or to different people, yeah. Additionally, deacons are called not to be addicted to wine. Uh, we said this about elders and overseers. It's not necessarily a, a restriction on alcohol consumption 
um, completely, it is a restriction against, al- against irresponsible consumption of alcohol. It's a great um, instruction to all believers, be careful, be wise. Ephesians puts it this way, Ephesians 5 says, do not be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit. And what Ephesians is telling us is you can't be drunk with both at the same time. You cannot simultaneously be under the influence of God and the Holy Spirit and be under the influence of, a, of another substance, okay? So what the Bible is telling us here is that those that move into positions of leadership and service within his church take great care in the substances they put into their body so that they can be spirit-led at all times, so that they can be wise at all times and not affected by a foreign substance. Additionally, a deacon cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Um, In 1 Timothy 3, uh, or in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3, the elder overseer is told they cannot be a lover of money. This is a similar thing. Now let's think back for a second to how the deacon group started. In the book of Acts, you have a group that was, that was selected from among the earliest followers of Jesus. Jesus has ascended, okay? You have this great ingathering of believers where thousands are coming to Christ in a very short period of time. You have the 12 disciples, those that receive the illustration of foot washing and the towel. They are the leaders of the church. They are teaching. They are leading in prayer. They are um, building these young groups of Christians and fellowshipping together. They're leading. And yet, there are some people that are not eating. And that's a problem because you have some widows in the church that are, it says in Acts 2, that everything that the believers held in common was being shared amongst those that had need. Except, we learn, that there's a certain group of widows that are being left out of that. The intention is right. Whatever we have of excess, we're going to share with those that have a need. But the administration of that intention was not working. And so this group of servants was created. Uh, Stephen, Philip, and some others were named as deacons to serve. And what they did is they managed the money that went to widows and to others that were in need. So, why is it so important that deacons not be greedy for dishonest gain? Because one of their roles was to serve those that were in need, to bring food, to to bring clothing, to bring shelter to those that were in need. So, those servants, deacons, were called to model character in these key ways. Dignified, trustworthy, not double-tongued. Trustworthy in their wisdom and function, not addicted to much wine. Trustworthy in their self-control. And trustworthy in their priorities. That they would not prioritize financial um, well-being or money, wealth, possessions. But that they would not be greedy for dishonest gain. And number two in our list of of core characteristics from verse 9 In addition to being a person of character, a deacon must also understand the gospel, basic doctrine. He says this very, very simply. Now, if you remember the overseer, there's an incredible incredible emphasis on an overseer being able to teach because overseers, pastors, elders, they're the teachers. This deacon servant is defined differently. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
It's a lower doctrinal teaching standard for deacons, but it's still there. That if somebody's going to lead the church as a pastor teacher or as a behind-the-scenes servant, they better know the gospel and be completely confident in the core of the gospel. This mystery of the faith is a way for Paul to speak of the gospel as he does it um, later in this same chapter. What Paul is requiring here is that the deacons would understand the gospel and the basic doctrines that center around the gospel so that they can present the gospel as they serve. Again, let's look back on the earliest group of deacons in the book of Acts. I told you Stephen and Philip were among those. Look at the stories of Stephen and Philip. They are frontline evangelists within the early church. Stephen is known, most of us might recognize that Stephen was the first martyr. Stephen being the first one to be killed for preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel right there in the center of Jerusalem and he was killed for it. Stephen was not some background guy that just didn't know, know what to speak or didn't feel confident speaking up for the truth. Stephen was a servant who, who served behind the scenes as a deacon but he knew the gospel, and he was bold with the gospel. Philip, also an evangelist, Philip is the first person who, he is the one that is responsible for the gospel going into the continent of Africa. Because Philip is the one that God uses, miraculously, just picks him up and puts him in the right place at the right time, and shares the gospel for, with an Ethiopian eunuch who is searching for the truth while reading the Old Covenant scriptures. And Philip presents the truth. He's a deacon, he serves behind the scenes, but he also knows the gospel, is bold with the gospel, and proclaims it. And then God takes the gospel through that Ethiopian eunuch on his carriage into the continent of Africa. And so, through Paul and the apostles, the mystery of the gospel is revealed. And through the deacons, the mystery of the gospel is demonstrated in acts of service and kindness and confirmed through the words that the deacons speak as they grasp onto the, ministry, the mystery of the gospel and serve in other ways. Third, a servant, a deacon, is tested and approved. That's our third qualification here. Verse 10 says, let them, the deacons, be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This is something that we all have to remember. This is true of any position for leadership in the church. So if you are out there and you are following Christ and you want to go to the next level and you want to be a pastor someday, maybe the Lord is calling you. Maybe you just want to be a, a kids ministry leader. Maybe you want to be a small group leader. Maybe you want to be a worship leader. You want to serve the church in some way. That is great. Let's fan that flame into fire. Let's give opportunities to lead to young people and to, to anyone that has a desire to go gr into greater leadership. But let's remember that leaders are tested first. And so one of the big mistakes that some young Christians can make is say, I want to lead, I want to lead, I want to lead. And they want a big platform for leadership without embracing the smaller platform for leadership. Leaders, whether it's pastors or deacons, whatever, need to be proven as faithful leaders in a small setting first. And then the Lord provides the greater opportunities for leadership. So if you want to be a pastor, lead a small group first. If you want to preach the gospel to many, preach the gospel to one first. Consistently, repetitively, serve somewhere. 
And God's going to provide an opportunity as he provides fruit through the faithfulness of a person in ministry doing things in a small setting. God's going to raise up more men and women into leadership and into opportunities in this church as those men and women serve faithfully in small ways. Preach the gospel to a five-year-old first. Preach the gospel to a 15-year-old first. Preach the gospel to an elderly person first. And then see what God does. See the fruit that is born. Anyone that serves in the leadership position in the church, in the New Testament, is tested first. And then they're proven to be blameless. Blameless, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, blameless doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means nobody can make a, a credible accusation against this, this hidden sin for a leader. You don't have any skeletons in the closet. You're not hiding anything because you've proved yourself faithful in a small setting. This is what character is. So again, let's, let's, let's remember we're on a couple of different tracks here. We're on a track talking about people that desire to be leaders and how we develop leaders. We're also just talking to ordinary, everyday Christians. Let's say you're in this room today. You don't have any desire to be a leader. And you're sitting here like, I don't want to be a deacon. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to take leadership position. I just want to get by being a faithful, everyday Christian. Well, faithful, everyday Christians pursue character and pursue this sort of lifestyle where you're faithful in little things first. And then, as you're more and more faithful in little things over a season of time, God gives you greater opportunities to serve Him and to serve His people. And faithfulness means blamelessness. means that people see your character lived out in small settings, and then it develops more and more and more over time. And then verse 12, the last, we're skipping verse 11. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 12, a servant manages his household well. Two requirements listed for deacon in verse 12 are identical to directives given to the elder group previously. A deacon is to be a one-woman man. That's the literal translation of husband of one wife. Something I spoke on a couple weeks ago, but I'll, I'll repeat to you. I don't believe, so the, the Greek language can be confusing in a couple of these verses here, because the word that is translated there, this is the English Standard Version, the words that are translated as husband of one wife, those two words could just as easily, instead of husband, be man, and instead of wife, be woman. And what we take that to mean is that a man is to be faithful to his wife. A one-woman man is the literal translation of this section, and it's the same as for overseers earlier in the same passage. So we're not saying that Elders, deacons must be married and must be married to only one woman. Obviously, if they're married, they should be married to one woman. But a single man can serve um, as long as he is serving in faithfulness to a wife that he has. Um, so the husband of one wife, similar to the qualification for the elder there. Managing his children and their households well. That means that, again, you're not required to be a parent if you serve in one of these roles. But if you are a parent, you're required to be faithful. You're required to be faithful there first. See, it goes right along with verse 10, that you must be tested first before you step into a leadership position. The primary testing ground for any leader is the home. That if you want to be faithful to lead a group of people, 
You've got to be faithful to lead your own home first. Love your wife well. Love your children well. Be faithful in the smaller setting, and then God will give you great opportunity in a larger setting. So marital faithfulness as a demonstration of character, faithfulness to love your children well and serve them well, those are prerequisites for any leadership position somebody might entertain in the church and their character definitions. Yes, I said prerequisites, even though it didn't sound like it. I always pronounce things correctly. Um, Verse 11, see, double-tongued, again, gave you another illustration. Verse 11. This This is a harder question than you might think it is. What I just told you from verse 12 is that the word translated as husband could just as easily be translated as man. The word translated as wife in verse 12 could just as easily be translated as woman, and therefore he could be husband of one wife, could be one woman man. So then, verse 11, what do we do with that? Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Um, Again, let's remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. And so when we interpret the Bible, we want to look at what is being said in our English translation. But we also want to go deeper to make sure we understand that the English translation is a faithful rendering of what the the Greek says. So here's something that I'm going to tell you. There is an interpretive challenge in this verse. Leading different churches who are faithful to Scripture and want to honor the teaching of Paul all throughout 1 Timothy and throughout the New Testament that have disagreements about how verse 11 is interpreted. Because if you change the first two words from their wives to the women... It changes a lot in this passage. If it, verse 11 says, The women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now remember, what we said about elders and overseers is that only men should serve in that role because that's what the New Testament teaches. And I know y'all are probably tired of me talking about male and female roles within these leadership positions, but it's right there. It's a big emphasis in these passages. So we need to understand what, it, what that means in each of these passages. 1 Timothy 2, before we got to 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 2 told us that the women were not supposed to be in positions of spiritual authority. Authority means responsibility. That men, both in the church and in the household, were supposed to take the primary roles of spiritual authority and responsibility for leadership. But then what about deacons here in verse 11? There are three possible interpretations to this passage. And again, brothers and sisters, people that believe the scriptures are are inspired by God and want to be faithful and conservative in their interpretations of it have come to different conclusions. And there's at least three you can come to. You can say what the English translation says. That verse 11 is describing additional requirements for the wives of deacons. You could also say that it should better be translated as the women, meaning verse 11 is about female deacons. That verse 12 is written specifically to male deacons, and verse 11, which comes before verse 12, is written specifically to female deacons, meaning that Paul is prepared for either to serve in that role. Or you could say there's this distinction here where the men are, are treated in the con- in the larger portion of the passage, and then he repeats something for a female subgroup of deacons, that they serve like deacons, but maybe they're not technically titled as deacons. 
Um, each of those positions can be argued. And I'll tell you, it is much more complicated than you might think it is to argue things like this from, from the Greek language. Um, either, either of these cases is compelling. And then you bring in, here's just your, your, your curveball for the day, you bring in passages like Romans 16, in which you have a woman referred to as a servant, a diakonoi, a woman that may potentially be serving as a deacon in the church of Rome. There's some confusing questions in here. Now, the point of this sermon is not to debate the application of this passage. Because what I'm going to tell you, and you probably know this, our church elects men to serve in the deacon role. And so we, we would take this, uh, the, the church's historic position is that their wives is the right interpretation of this passage. But I will tell you, that we will lock arms and serve faithfully with other churches that would disagree on this issue because it is not the gospel-centric issue through which we must divide fellowship or not work alongside other churches on. I believe that this scripture, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3, are very, very clear for us that men are to serve as pastors and elders. And I believe that it is unclear on whether or not men, women, both should serve as deacons, okay? And so this is one of those things that we take a, 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 a light-handed approach to, to where this is what our approach is at this church, but we understand where people might disagree with this. I'll additionally say that the role of deacon, and you can read it for yourself. See, I'm, I'm just trying to engage your mind and get you thinking. Anytime you talk about men and women, people's like ears perk up, okay? If you want to read and study, throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Look at what the role is, and the book of Acts, throw that in there. Look at how the role definition for elders, pastors, overseers, versus the role definition for deacons. The role definition is very clear. Elders preach, teach, lead in spiritual authority. The role definition for deacons is less clear. They serve... The primary function of deacons in the book of Acts is to free up the elders to, to pray and to minister the word. And there's no definition in 1 Timothy or Titus as to what those, that group does. They just serve. And so different churches define the office of deacons in different ways. In our church, deacons serve in the background. They, they serve through, through physically ministering to people making reparations to homes. They, the deacons serve in security on Sunday morning to make sure we can worship in safety. Uh, the deacons manage projects on the physical property of the church. Those things are not defined. The New Testament doesn't say deacons manage the physical property of the church while elders preach and teach. That's something that we take some wisdom to apply how each local church enacts their deacon role. The deacon role is essential in Fellowship Bible Church and in the New Testament church. Here's the takeaway I want you to hear from, from verse 11, okay? That the deacon role is essential and that what Paul is at least saying, whether he is saying that women should serve as deacons or not, or he's just talking about deacon wives, what, he never says anything about overseer, pastor, elder wives. What he says about, about these women in verse 11 tells us that Paul values the role 
that women can play in the ministry of service in the local church. Whether he's talking about women serving alongside their husbands or women serving in the role themselves. What is absolutely clear and what we must embrace is that God and the scriptures values women that serve in the church, but they serve differently. Women don't serve in the position of a spiritual authority or teacher in the church in the way that the scriptures reserve that role for men. Let me tell you something. This church is healthier because of the ministry of women that serve in, the, in various ministry roles, which is why I told you about the women's prayer team today, because they're an essential part of the ministry of the church. Everybody knows that Ramona works hardest of anyone on the staff. She's essential to the ministry of the church. You guys have seen and know the vital role that Rika plays within our church as she is preaching the gospel to our children right now. You know, many of you, the matriarchs of this church, those women who serve and serve well in a variety of teaching and, and um, ministry uh, roles within this church. So I think we need to embrace from verse 11 that women play an important service ministry role in the church too, whether they are titled as deacons or not. And, and we do not title women as deacons. We, you, we elect men to serve as deacons. But there's four qualifications listed here. So let's, let's emphasize those. Those are clear as well. Dignified. Again, a restatement of the, of the qualification given at the beginning of this passage in verse 8. Worthy of respect. Secondly, a woman must not be a slanderer. This is similar to double-tongued, but a little bit different. Um, this is somebody who is um, a slanderer, is somebody who is not saying different things to different people, but saying untrue things about people or to people. So we know that women, just as men, are called to be honest, to embrace the truth, and to demonstrate character by guarding their words. Third, temperate or sober-minded. This is somebody that is temperate, careful in the way they discipline their minds and the way they maintain self-control in a variety of different areas. So those women, just as men, are called to be careful and sober-minded, self-disciplined, so women are called to be sober-minded. And finally, the women are called to be faithful in all things. Kind of a summary requirement. Faithful in what God puts in front of you, how God uh, gives you opportunities to serve him, his kingdom, and his church. This one verse list of four requirements for women who serve the church they are, they are an example for us of what the woman of good, strong character is. We have examples through the elder list and earlier in the deacon list. This is what mature men look like. Verse 11, this is what mature women look like. And there's so much overlap that we can see application for any of us in so many of these different things. Again, we want good qualified, godly, mature leaders in the church. And we also want every member of the church to be pursuing character and maturity. And so these qualifications are for every one of us. These qualifications define who should be a leader, but these qualifications define for every one of us what character looks like and the picture of maturity we should all be pursuing. That we should be dignified 
that we should be not double talkers, we should not be slanderers, we should be careful in our words, we should be careful and disciplined in our minds, we should be faithful in little things so that God will give us greater and greater opportunities. So we'll wrap it this way. Three different sermons this month on um, these first 12 or 13 verses of 1 Timothy 3. We're about to take a break to go to Isaiah for Christmas, but here's, here's how I want you to see the, the passages of leadership come together. God is calling his church to go and make disciples, to be a positive impact in the community for his kingdom. And for God to fulfill that mission, God uses people. It's God's mission that God chooses to use people to fulfill. And if we want to be a part of fulfilling the mission that God is accomplishing because he will accomplish his mission and his goals. We can all play a part. And servant leadership is a part. We embrace servant leadership because Jesus demonstrated servant leadership. We embrace the paradigm that Jesus sent because every single one of us that calls ourselves a Christian is saying in calling ourselves a Christian, we follow Jesus. So what's the paradigm he set? A paradigm that includes a towel through which every one of us, from the least to the greatest, is called to serve others and to humble ourselves. Servant leadership is the primary definition of Jesus' leadership. Secondly, everyone, and I mean everyone, finds a place to serve. Everyone can find a place to serve. If you need help finding your place to serve, then let's talk. Let's find it. Because for some of you, your place to serve might be in a ministry role that we need filled in this church right now. And for many of you, your place to serve in God's kingdom may be outside of this local church, not in a specific volunteer position, but doing something in the community, in your workplace, in your family, to bring honor and glory to God and to help build his kingdom through making disciples on the mission he's called us to. And finally, if you look back at verse 9, they... These servants, these leaders, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I'm going to ask the team to come up and, and lead us. And as they're making their way up, I'll make one final point. What verse 9 tells us is that if you want to be a leader, you've got to know the gospel. And what I'll tell you is that that first requirement for leadership of knowing the gospel is the first step towards any of us to enter the family of God, but it's also the step we take continually to grow in the family of God. Deeper knowledge of the gospel, deeper commitment to who Christ is and what he has done. AJ has already given us a beautiful presentation of the gospel, where in the gospel we recognize that we, our sin is far more, is far worse and far more offensive to God than we might imagine. And yet God's love for us, the mercy that Christ has shown us at the cross, is far greater and far deeper than we could ever imagine as well. And while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, then God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to die for us. So before we get anything about leadership right, we have to get the gospel right. That it's not about entering Christ's kingdom through character. We don't do that. Don't, we don't get in that way. 
Embracing these character traits of 1 Timothy 3 isn't the door to enter into the kingdom. The gospel is. Jesus is. And it's only through the sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus, the resurrection and the empty tomb that we actually enter into his presence and his family. So if you're overwhelmed by this pursuit of leadership and character and what maturity looks like, start at the cross. Start at the gospel. Embrace the forgiveness of sins that is offered to you. And let's all stand together. If you want to come and talk more about the gospel or give your life to Christ this morning, the altar's open. I'd love to share with you. I'd love to pray with you. But let's all sing.
to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace to glorify our God.